So our third session for today is about parish life. Um, and so we talked about the, the marriage. And, and really, I was thinking about how to order this. And I thought the parish life maybe would go first uh, because it's out of the parish that springs other sacraments. So the marriage is a sacrament that is rooted in what the church is. Which is why, by the way, I don't love doing weddings for people who just show up and say, your chapel is so beautiful, can we use it to get married? Well, marriage is a church. It's a sacrament. It's, it's related to the church. So if you aren't a church member or churchgoer, um, maybe try that first, and then we'll talk about getting married. Um, but anyways, but the, so uh, we could have done it where we started with parish and went to, to marriage, but I wanted to start with marriage and, and kind of go this direction instead. Um, but uh, anyway, so the couple, the, the kind of fruitfulness of the couple produces children, but the, but the family itself, the family unit, can't exist by, its, by itself. It's not a solitary uh, thing. It's got to be plugged into something bigger, and that thing is the parish. And of course, what is a parish? A parish is an individual instantiation. It's, it's, a, it's an individual uh, concrete visible group of people who are plugged into a much larger reality itself, right? I mean, like we say every Sunday, it's with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. It's what we preached about on Trinity Sunday, that when we say holy, 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 and we sing that angelic hymn, we're not just singing it, all of us here together, we're singing it with the whole church, um, including those who have gone before us, all 2,000 years of Christians um, who, who sing that heavenly hymn. But, but as humans who are in space and in time, we encounter that transcendent reality through a specific community of people, and that's the parish. That's why the parish is so important. And that's why we should care about our parish, even if you don't like the priest, even if you don't like the other people in the, in the pews, even if the vestry annoys you, you know, no matter what, even if you, the music's not your favorite. You know, all of that, while you, know, you want to have the best music and you want to have good priests and you want to have uh, a good vestry, but all of that is sort of um, accidental. You know, it's, it, uh, vestries come and go, um, you know, musicians come and go, uh, uh, priests come and go, um, but the parish itself is a visible expression of that invisible and bigger reality. And so the parish really is in, in many ways sacramental in that regard. And um, it's important to know, I mean, I think, you know, you'll never love the church, uh, you'll never love a church until you love the one you're at. <laughs> uh, you'll never love, how does that song go? You'll never, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until you love the one you're with, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the same principle. Love the one you're with. That's right. That's right. Because I know people who bounce from church to church, and it's like, well, I'll find the perfect church someday, you know. And of course, you won't because there are people there. Um, so that poses a little bit of a problem. But it's important to remember that that the that a parish is like a family. The parish is like a family. Um, you know, we don't always choose our family. In fact, rarely do we actually choose our family. Uh, you're born into a particular home, and you know there are certainly degrees of dysfunction and 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 really terrible things where sometimes it may be best to be removed from a particular situation. But in general, you know, part of being a family is learning to put up with other people's flaws and and also realizing that they do the same thing for you. And so the, a, a parish is very similar. And of course, the structure of a parish is also somewhat uh, familial. So, for example, I mean, like I said, we call priest father. Um, and this is something you have to explain sometimes to some of the Baptists and evangelicals because, you know, Jesus says, call no man father. Um, but he's not saying that literally you cannot call people father because elsewhere he calls, he uses titles. The, the disciples call him rabbi. He also says, don't call anyone rabbi. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, his point is don't be so attached to someone that, it, that it, it takes your eye off the ball in terms of what's important. That's what Jesus is really saying. So, so the priest in a parish has a fatherly function because they are taking care of the people in the parish. Now, that happens a few ways. Primarily, that happens through their sacramental duties, the bringing of communion to the people every week. 
um, either through the communion service or visiting the sick. Um, that's a big chunk of it. But there's other ways in which the sacramental ministry or the, 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 the fatherly ministry of the priest works itself out. I mean, there's the sitting with the sick, you know, visiting people who are, who are not well. Um, there's, there's being there with someone. There's the, the weeping with those who weep and the rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's a very fatherly duty. I mean, we do that with our kids, you know. So there's that. There's the teaching and discipline part. You know, the, I mean, yes, there's the, the preaching, but there's also teaching. The priest catechizes. The priest uh, makes sure that the people have what they need. So when we see things like, hey, our culture really doesn't understand gender. Okay, we're going to talk about what gender and sexuality is from a biblical Christian perspective. You know, that's our job. And that's part of what we're charged with at ordination, that we, we make sure that we instruct the flock in, in godly things. And there's also the discipline aspect. You know, I mean, if, if, I, if I'm aware of someone who's living in a state of really serious, unconfessed sin that disrupts the, the harmony of the body here, my job is to say, I, you're not allowed to receive communion here. And in fact, in some cases, I may even say you can't come here um, anymore for whatever reason. So there's that aspect. So there's priest as father, but there's also the idea of church as mother. So we've talked about this before, I think. Um, you know, we have Mothering Sunday, Mothering Sunday, and, you know, they make the simnel cake and all that. And um, traditionally in England, it was a time when the, when the servants would be allowed to go home. Um, and so they would see their parents. But also it was a time in England where you would make a pilgrimage to the church where you were baptized because that's your mother church. That's the church in which you were born again. So you go back and you visit the church. In fact, we had that happen, not on Mothering Sunday, but fairly recently there was a family who I think they live out in Illinois maybe, and they came to church here one Sunday and they brought their daughter who was about 25 and she was baptized in the chapel in like 96 or something. And I thought that was really cool. Um, 98, it would have been 98. But anyways, yeah, I thought that was really cool. It was like, hey, this is your mother church, you know, and you've made a pilgrimage all the way back here for it. Um, in, the, in the early church, fonts were actually often constructed in such a way as to kind of mirror female anatomy as a way of symbolizing that this is a place of new birth, that you're being born here. Um, and of course, this is also at the Easter vigil, if you've ever been here for that, you know, there's the Paschal candle and it gets dipped into the font. There is kind of this imagery of reproduction occurring there. Um, out of this font springs new life, you know, so that's why we bless the font every, every Easter vigil. So the church is mother, and this is why often um, Mary is associated with the church, because she's the mother of our Lord, the church is our mother, Mary is also our mother because we're in Christ. So this is where some of those connections come from, and they're really important connections. So if it's true that the, that the relationship between husband and wife is one that should be fruitful, then it's also true that the parish itself should be fruitful as well. And so how is a parish fruitful? Two ways, at least that I could think of, that are important for our discussion today. The first is evangelism, and the second is discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. And I don't think these are two unconnected things. In fact, they're, it's sort of a, a cyclical relationship between the two. You know, when we talk about evangelism, we're talking about going out into the world and bringing people into the church. And there are many ways of doing this. You know, I mean, um, if you've ever spent any time in evangelical circles, like at Liberty, we had to take a class called Evangelism 101. And part of the project was you had to go evangelize to someone in the community. Um, who you don't really know. So you go up to them, hey, you know, if you died tonight, where would you go? Um, that kind of thing, you know, and um, try and get them to a point of decision. And so you had to write a paper about, about whether they responded positively or not. That's certainly one way that we can evangelize. There are other ways too, though. I mean, you know, you live in a neighborhood, you have neighbors. Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Do you talk about your faith to your neighbors? I mean, you don't have to beat them over the head with the Bible, but do, you, do they know that that's where you come from? Your friends, your extended family, all those, I mean, how often does that come up? Do they know that, that this is a part of who you are? And over time, building those relationships is really important because you never know. I mean, first of all, some sow, some reap. So you may never even know that what you say or what you do has any uh, significance to a person uh, who maybe later on comes to faith because of, of something that you said or did. 
But also, you know, if you're willing to be in relationship with someone and they know where you're coming from, it often will raise questions later down the road. And they might feel comfortable after they get to know you asking, hey, why do you, why is church so important to you? I thought church was just for messed up people. And then you can say, well, that's why I go. But, but so that idea of evangelism, I mean, it can be a relational thing. It can be a long-term thing. I mean, I've talked about this, you know, going to the parish brewery and the parish bar and everything and hanging out with people there. Like, um, you all remember Kevin who played guitar at, uh, at the uh, um, uh, Lessons and Carols, right? So I was there yesterday and he was there. And unfortunately, next Friday is his last Friday at the parish brewery. But said something, he said something like, yeah, so I guess I'll have to come visit you at your church now. And I said, hey great you know so you know i i have no agenda there you know i mean i i mean i would love for him to come to church but you know i just really enjoy him and getting to know him and and over time we've gotten to talk about some interesting things and so you know hopefully that will be fruitful one day you know um i've told the story about deacon david and i running into the couple at the parish at the at the dive bar down the street at ramshead and how they came to a theology in the garden night and got to talk to the husband for 45 minutes about about God. So, you know, evangelism is, is something that we can always be doing in, in some way or another. And it doesn't have to be confronting someone and, or, or giving them a tract. Of course, don't ever do evangelism where you leave a tract instead of a tip at the, at the restaurant. There are people who do that. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's because I know Rich, I know his faith. He is very, very strong and very active in his faith. And she, and she went around and when she put it on his front door step, she said, You're not leaving it, I am. I mean, she was just very religious. Hopefully, you went over and grabbed it after she left. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I almost did. It was Mormon. Mormon. Yeah. yeah. I had a friend. I had a friend who, uh, his family is Roman Catholic, and they go to a Dominican church, and Dominicans are, like, where Thomas Aquinas was, so they love Thomas Aquinas. And so they had some Mormons come visit. And his dad's a blue-collar, you know, union welder or something. And, uh, and the, this, these Mormon people come and knock on the door and say, hey, can we share the, our faith with you? And he's, or can we share something about our book? And he said, great, great, uh, yeah, you can, as long as you let me share something about my book when you're done. So he, let the, he sat through their little presentation. He goes, are you done? And they said, yes. So he got down the Summa Theologica, which is a huge volume by Thomas Aquinas, and put it on the desk and said, all right, time to talk about my book. <laughs> I don't think they were back. They came back after that. So, so there's this work of evangelism, right? Outreach. How do we reach people? And like I said, that can take different forms in different ways. You know, um, it, doesn't always, it doesn't always mean cornering someone and trying to get them to, you know, say a particular prayer in a given moment, but it can be an invitation into life. Again, hey, come to church with me sometime and just see what it's like. You know, you're inviting someone in. But that's also tied to discipleship, right? So what is discipleship? I mean, obviously being a disciple um, in Latin, discipulus means student, right? And so you get this idea. I mean, the, the way that the apostles often address Jesus as rabbi, teacher, you know, so they are clearly learning at his feet throughout his ministry, um, and so that, that really is kind of what it means to be a disciple. It's to, it's to follow Jesus. It's to learn from him. And we can't do that on our own. Um, it, we become disciples in community with each other. Um, we look at other people and we, we learn, uh, we're taught, we're formed, we're shaped, we're molded um, in the liturgy and in, through the preaching and through the um, through. Bible study and through our interactions with others. You know, I mean, um, we look at someone like in our context, we have Ronaldo, you know, who does a great work in the community and he can, he can be a good way to learn about what it means to be an active Christian, you know, from, from something like that. So discipleship is kind of a a way in which we are strengthened. And, and this is the key, right? Because what you have in the American church often in a lot of places is you have churches that focus on evangelism and not as much on discipleship. So people have a faith that's a mile wide but an inch thick. 
And then you send them out into the world to go evangelize people. And it's like, this is where you get some of the, <laughs> you know, instances like what Kathy just described, where, you know, maybe, maybe you need to do a little bit more work before you're ready to go out and do that. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're, we're doing these two. And, and I think culturally this is really important as well. Kathy was asking in the break, you know, how do we, we look at all the things going on in the world and how do we as a church address it? And, and part of it is um, that for so long we've had a church fighting a culture war that's not really discipled. And so it often loses the forest for the trees or, or loses its uh, – loses its, uh, takes its eye off the ball. And so it's not very effective because it's willing to play political games and you know side with – Make, make certain concessions in order to fit into certain political agendas, and, uh, and that can really warp things. And so you have a really unhealthy church trying to win the culture through activist means that really don't, aren't going to work. And so part of what I think, and, and there's a good book on this called The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher, which I've talked about before, but part of this is we build really robust community here. The parish becomes a place where we catechize, where we disciple, um, where we offer alternatives to what is happening in the world. And over time, by building really good, beautiful parishes, by offering people something deeper, something better, then that will work its way out. But this is, this is where we start. It's like I... I, I... Mm. And uh, so you get this type of, um, you know, student-teacher relationship. It's kind of like what you're talking about. Yes. Start disciple, evangelize. He was evangelizing to me in that context. I was his disciple. So now I'm teaching, and then exponentially, every student I have, like I got 16 of them. So I'm passing this evangelizing on to they are my disciples. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Yeah, oh, it's exactly like that. Yeah. So it it is so with us at the church. Right. The same. Yes. You are the, you know, the the evangelizing and you are the disciples. You're you're bringing in this, you know, same thing. We begin, we begin to, we begin to be formed and shaped in the parish and that continues and then we take that out and inevitably that will connect with people um, and, and spreads and, it, it, and also I think it's again it's about strengthening what we have too um, so rather than worrying about every little thing it's like okay what are, what are we doing here so I mean for example one, one way that this might work itself out and we're not in a position, I don't think, to do this particular thing. But I think, you know, I mean, you look at the state of public education and what's being taught in public schools, right? Uh, I don't I, – I, every family will make their own decision, and the church needs to support and them however they decide. But I also think that the church should be doing things to make alternatives either available or known to – so, like, for example, we have Rockbridge School right down the street – um, and, you know, I would love to get to a point where we can say, have something like a scholarship fund, like what we do for college for families who might want to send their kids there because it is expensive, you know, but it's like, if a family wants that for their kids, we should be supportive of that, you know, <laughs> because, because it's, again, it's catech- it's catechesis. How, what does discipleship look like? So the average family, do, uh, Christian family today probably doesn't go to church every Sunday. They probably go twice a month, statistically speaking. So maybe you're at church for an hour, maybe two hours every other week, so four hours a month. How many hours a week are you sitting in a classroom in a public school? How many hours a month are you sitting in? So who's catechizing your kid, really? Right. Not the church. Not you, because you're wor- you know, if you're at work and they're at school, I mean, you're, not, you're only seeing them a couple hours a day where you're actually pouring into them anyways. So yeah, what are alternatives that we can that we can push? You know, how can we help? So again, like we don't have a facility where we could start a school, but we can talk to people at Rockbridge and say, hey, what can we do to help support you? We can talk to families and say, hey, 
what do you need in order to make a, a different decision or a decision you might want with your kids, you know, stuff like that. So that, that's one example of, of how this might look. Uh, Dreher calls, calls the parish and the church a parallel polis. That is a, a, a parallel city. So, you know, you have the city of man and it'll do things. And, uh, and at, at certain points, we have to just not participate in those. And we have to say, OK, we're building something here. So, like, we have a school being built in, in Virginia right now, St. Dunstan's Academy. It's a boys' boarding school, high school boarding school for Anglican. Well, it will be Anglican. You don't have to be Anglican to go there. But, you know, there's an example of a parallel polis being built. Rockbridge, parallel polis. Annapolis Area Christian School, parallel polis. You know? So um, what does that look like? And, that, and that's really going to be the question, I think, in the next uh, 10, 15 years. You know, we'll have to, we'll have to really build those institutions and that, but that's how we're fruitful. That's how we're fruitful. Um, Are you going to mention the remnant as part of? The- yeah, let's talk about the remnant. So, um, so the remnant is uh, Martin Thornton speak. Martin Thornton, like I said, is an Anglican priest uh, from the mid twentieth century to late twentieth century, who writes a lot about spiritual formation, and and his theory is that um, that. I've said this before, parishes are geographical regions in England, right? So, um, and I, I said this the other day, you know, we're, we're the parish of Annapolis, Anne Arundel County, like that's our parish. Um, and so, but not everybody in your community goes to church. I mean, even in England, not everybody would go to church. So what's our job as a parish? To pump life into our larger community, um, we're the heartbeat, you know, pumping out uh, through our prayer, through our communion, you know. So it's like, so you know, we could do we could do something um, in the community. We could we could go pray outside of Planned Parenthood, for example. And I think that's a that's a good thing. But at the same time, is that really more important than saying mass with the intention of, you know, praying for for the pro life cause? I think that that's actually more of what we're supposed to be doing. But but in doing that, we're we're bettering our community. It's like my friend works in a parish in England, and um, they, they hired a priest who started doing a daily mass. And within a year, the porn shop next door to the church closed. Now, now it's hard to draw a direct line of correlation from his daily mass to them closing. At the same time, I don't think they're unconnected, you know. So anyway, so that's our job. But, but Thornton goes a step further. He goes further into the parish and says, look, in a parish, you have levels of participation. You have people who don't really come every Sunday, or even you have people who are fine coming Sunday, but they don't really want to do much during the week. You have people who love coming to Mass, who, who may enjoy the daily office, but they don't feel like they're maybe supposed to do the daily office every day. And, you know, that's, that is what it is. But he says in every parish there is a remnant. There's a core group of people who pray the office, who go to Mass every Sunday, who, who develop private prayer lives in conjunctions with, uh, with a spiritual director. And that remnant pumps life into the rest of the church. Not everyone's called to be part of the remnant, and that's okay. It's not like saying, oh, the remnant are my favorite, and I don't like anybody else in the parish, or I only talk to the remnant. It's not a click. It's saying these are people who, are, who, who kind of see what's, what's happening and see the need for this, and they're willing to, to put the time and energy and effort into it. And so that's another way in which discipleship happens. Yeah, that, that, everyone is called to go out and, and right. actively evangelize right. out into the community or be part of the musical life of the church or take care of the gardens. Or exactly. Different gifts, like St. Paul says in First Corinthians, different gifts, and that's good. We need those different gifts. We're all the sign of Christ. Right. Yep. And so the remnant then becomes a a a, um, a, a means of discipleship, at, at least for the people who are in it. You you may disciple other people other ways, but the remnant is discipled that particular way of living into the rule, understanding their role as as, as that kind of. He does use that imagery of the veins pumping the blood into the rest of the parish. You know, um, dynamo. Dynamo. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yes, yes, that's key. And like I said, when we're talking about the home as a monastery, you know, worship, prayer, that's the heart of it. And that's also the heart of a parish. 
you know, we can do all the other stuff we do, and that's good, and we should do those things. But uh, it doesn't replace, supplant, or minimize the importance of Holy Communion is the center of who we are. Morning and evening prayer are the rhythm by which we live. Uh, those are really essential things for the life of a parish. And Thornton even says, well, if a church is not willing to understand that or not do that, in other words, if they want to be a community organization or a country club or a political action wing, then they should just cease to exist because they're not that important. They're replaceable. I mean, the Republican Party of Annapolis, of Anne Arundel County or the Democratic Party of Anne Arundel County will do anything politically much better than we will ever do them here. The country club down the street, much better than we would do here. So, um, so the parish then, if, if evangelism and discipleship are the means by which we become fruitful, the parish is a place of formation, just like the home is also a place of formation, right? The, the parents are disciplining, they're teaching, they're leading in prayer, setting examples. And so we do that. We do that first and foremost through the sacraments and through the liturgy. The liturgy is so important because it forms us, it teaches us, it shapes us, it teaches us how to pray even when we don't know how. And I mean, just think about things in the liturgy sometimes. I mean, it's, it's like, why am I on my knees right now? Why did I just genuflect? Why did I just make the sign of the cross? You know, I mean, it, just all of that. It's, it really, it should come alive for us. So we get formed through prayer. We get formed through prayer. And we get formed through the proclamation of the gospel, right? Every part of the liturgy, you know, there's kind of the two sections of the liturgy. The first half is called the liturgy of the word. And the second half is called the liturgy of the sacrament. The first part is all about, it's the reading of the scriptures out loud. You're encountering them. It's then the, it's the, it's the priest or the deacon or, or someone else preaching to you. The Spirit is moving in the words that are being said. And so it's forming you, it's shaping you. And of course we can, and I, I do this all the time, and I'm sure other people do, and it's hard to blame them, hard not to blame them. But I mean, you, you listen to sermons and you, you think, okay, I, I didn't really learn anything there. But, you know, but that's why it's important to pray before and during and, um, and, and to, to be paying attention because maybe there is something in there that you can, you can learn or apply. So that idea of proclamation, that's, that starts in the parish. And of course, again, it goes out, it reverberates out because what's preached here is what you take with you. And so, yeah, I mean, and you don't necessarily preach it the way that we would preach it at a, during a service, but you take that and you, you're applying it in your life. And so your life becomes a kind of living sermon or a living proclamation. And it happens, so it happens through the sacraments and liturgy, it happens through proclamation, and it happens through teaching. We're discipled through teaching. And there's a theoretical and a practical component to teaching. I mean, you know, you have to understand the why. You have to understand the why. So, for example, the Eucharistic prayer. Which person of the Trinity are we praying to during the Eucharistic prayer? Who is our prayer directed to primarily? Which person? All glory be to thee, almighty God, our heavenly Father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ. So the prayer is to the Father. Okay, great. There is a discussion to be had about why that's the case, right? And, and that discussion can feel kind of theoretical sometimes, you know. The Nicene Creed, you know, you, you read the Trinitarian theology of church fathers, you know, and you begin to your mind begins to hurt because you're trying to figure out how to wrap all that together. But, but it's not purely theoretical, is it? Because it comes out every Sunday. The fact that we do that is teaching us something. So there's a practical aspect to this as well. So it's never just, we're never just learning for the sake of learning because we want to be smart. I mean, we want to be smart or we want to learn because it will help us be better at praying. And praying helps us be better at thinking too. Right? The, the willingness to, to, to be taught by the liturgy and to say, well, why are we doing it that way? Why, aren't we off, why isn't the Eucharistic prayer offered to the Spirit or to the Son? That all has 
practical implications. So there is no such thing as purely theory when we're talking about theology. And that's also why it's such a travesty when you look at the state of the academy uh, where most theology is now done. And you see that it's being done by people who don't believe or practice religion. Harvard Divinity School, a place where we study religion, but we don't necessarily practice it. <laughs> um, is a, it's a travesty, right? Because theologians should be people of prayer. And people of prayer are theologians, whether they have academic degrees or not. And so we don't need someone in an ivory tower telling us X, Y, and Z is true theologically, right? We, and in fact, if you look in the history of the church, that was never how it was. It was always bishops, priests, and deacons. Thomas Aquinas, one of the best thinkers in church history, was a priest who had a profound spiritual experience before he finished his magnum opus that he said, I can't finish it because everything is straw because I had this experience with God and nothing else matters anymore. Um, Augustine was a bishop and he wrote these profound theoretical theological treatises and, and his own autobiography is, is so thoughtful. But it's not, for the, it's not an intellectual masturbation. It's, 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 it's real reflection on practical things. And so we have to balance the two. You know, theology is not just an exercise we do for fun. It's not something we do to sound smart. It's something we do because our lives depend on it literally. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, especially if I'm not sure where, where my sermon's going. And he said, God will talk to me. Yep. And that has stuck with me. I was probably 10th grade. I'm 74 now. Yep. I mean, you know. I had my former bishop said that the best sermons he ever preached were written on his knees. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I, a couple of weeks ago, I'm trying to remember if it was Trinity Sunday or maybe Pentecost, I was having trouble with the sermon and I came in on Sunday at about 5:30 and put the Eucharist in a uh, the monstrance and put it on the on the chapel altar and just adored the sacrament for 30 minutes. And that that was that I the sermon ended up turning out okay, I think. Um but it was beca- and I think it was because I was able I just took the time and instead of worrying about okay, how am I going to phrase it or whatever, it was just I just need to so absolutely, absolutely. Um, theology is prayer, prayer is theology. Um, and, and so we, when we are engaging prayerfully in, in that, we are becoming formed and shaped and molded, and it's, it's good for us. We're being, we're being discipled. Lewis talks about this in his introduction to, uh, to On the Incarnation. He says, some people benefit from devotional books, but some of us benefit more from a, a tough piece of theology in front of us and a pipe clenched between our teeth. So, so, there's, so there's this idea, I think, of Parrish's family, right? We talked about the father, the priest being the father, and the, the font, the, 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 the mothering nature of the church, and, and that leading to fruitfulness. So the parish becomes a place of formation through, through evangelism and discipleship. And I also think it's important to, to kind of come to a conclusion with the idea that the parish is a family for those who don't always have family, um, or, or a place for for people who, yeah, who are without what they need. So, for example, um, you know, there are Christians who are called to celibacy for various reasons. You know, maybe they struggle with their own sexual identity, for example. Maybe they, maybe they would identify as, as, as homosexual or something like that. And, um, you know, it helps to know that that's their struggle because, well, they need a family, in which they can flourish. I had a friend who, who is gay, and, but committed to living in the church's teaching. And so, you know, every Christmas and Thanksgiving and your family, hey, come, come hang out with us on Thanksgiving, you know, because we, we want to be your sort of adopted family. And so the, but the parish as a whole can be that. I mean, think about some of the people who are here who have lost husbands or wives or who never married or who never had kids or whatever, and the parish becomes the place in which they can experience that. 
um, you know, the, the, the children of the church become their children in a sense. Um, the, the, the people who are in the church come alongside them and help them bear their burdens. That's really our job as a, as a parish to do that. And so, um, and so just like the gospel is played out in a marriage, you know, there's this mystery of Christ and his church. Just like the gospel is played out in the context of a family where the children are being taught and formed and the, the, the whole family is oriented around a life of prayer, so the parish becomes a place where the gospel can be played out to those people who really are hurting and who really need it. And that's a way in which we develop that evangelism and, and discipleship uh, feedback loop. You know, What does it look like to take care of this person? Part of that is, is gospel. It's, it's preaching. And part of it is doing the hard work of coming alongside them and helping them bear their burdens. Mm. And he said to her, uh, I, I, what did he, I, 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 you are not going to send them. I don't condemn you, and neither, they don't condemn you now, and I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of interesting, the parallel that I'm getting at here is that, you know, what you're just saying, you know, uh, we, 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 people who are sinning, you know, homosexuality, yeah. others, you know. We, 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 we love them as a person. Yeah. We don't approve Correct. what their behavior is. Right. But as long as we can show them God's love through us, maybe they'll stop sinning. Right. They'll stop living the life that they're living. And it's an ongoing thing, right? I mean, um, I mean you think about the work, something like AA as well, right, you know? Uh, this isn't, these aren't always things that just go away. Um, and, and the person's not responsible for the temptation, you know? Uh, we all are attracted to different things that might be considered disordered, you know? And, and the question is, what do you do with it? And having a community in which you can work that out and be supported as you do that journey, and sometimes probably failing, but where, there, where the gospel is constantly being played, you know, so hey, you messed up. Go to confession. Get absolved of your sins. Keep keep trying. You know, the struggle continues, but you you have to get this done. You know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's like I. Uh, uh, so that same class that I taught, where with, of ninth graders on Christian mind, one of them, and I thought this was very interesting because his dad was a Southern Baptist pastor, but he he said to me, "Would you do a gay wedding?" And I said, "Well, no, I wouldn't do a gay wedding." And let me explain. It has very. It has nothing to do with the fact that I dislike gay people i don't um it has everything to do with what marriage is and what i think the scriptures teach us about human flourishing in the context of relationships so i go on this thing and then at the end of it he goes so what do you have against gay people and i said i have nothing against gay. i want as many gay people in my church as possible because they need to hear the gospel and they need to live in the rhythm of receiving the sacraments and going to confession and all that and so it's not about that. It's not that I have a hang-up about that one issue where I think that they're incredibly icky and no one else is. It's that they need the gospel just like everyone else does. I, 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 I think but, that also that they cannot be married. Well, that's, that's what I said when I said what marriage is. Yeah. It is impossible. Right. It's not an ontological. It's not a sacramental marriage. It's, it's a legal contract between two people, which is what our... We have, ever since no-fault divorce, really, there's been no Christian marriage in terms of what the state says is marriage and not, right? Because marriage is something that can't be uh, ended. Um, I think that, that what I wanted to get at was that in our present climate with all this LGBTQ plus A business and in the churches that embrace this, 
I think what's going on is that they're, they're, they're encouraging and entitling, or yeah. in, in, what's the word I'm trying to say, uh, empowering these, these folks to come to church, but you can still be a homosexual. You can still practice what yep. you're practicing, and it's okay because God loves you. Go and sin no more is pretty important there, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, and it's important because, because grace transforms us. It doesn't leave us as it found us. You know, I, we're not the same person now because of, because of God working in our lives. And, and it takes time and it take, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, like I was talking with someone, I said, well, you know, I would never take someone who is an alcoholic to the bar after they got baptized. They are a new creation, right? There is a sense in which there's a radical, uh, something new about them, but at the same time, they're still struggling with that. And so to take them to the, that would just be irresponsible, wouldn't it? And so similarly, you know, someone who might feel pricked and say, I, I need to go to church, but I have this lifestyle. The, the, the least loving thing we could do would be to say, hey, do whatever you want. Keep yeah. doing that. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's come and die. Yeah. It's pick up your cross and follow Christ. Something that comes to mind for me is if we are following uh-huh. We're saying confession twice a day. Uh-huh. And the confession doesn't change. Right. That's true. I am unable. Miserable offender. I have sinned since this morning. Yes. And and you've mentioned alcoholics a number of times. I am one. And mm. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I haven't had a drink. One of their readings uh, this Wednesday was talking about is alcohol my biggest my biggest enemy? Mm. And I had to say no. Right. It could be again, but I have other big enemies: anger, envy, fear, lust. Yep. Primarily pride. All the others come from that, according to the church. Yes. But all of these issues don't go away. Right. You could take me to a bar. You know, when when my daughter got married, there was a bar there, and I hung out with the other guys. Yeah. You know, I don't have an issue with that, but I'm still a sinner. Yep. Right. And it's exactly the same kind of thing. In fact, the thing that made alcohol a sin in my mind was once while praying, I heard a voice that said, David, I can't talk to you when you're like this. Mm. Uh When it got hard to be David, I took a drink instead of praying. Yep, yep. That's right. The temptation never goes away. Right. I mean, I, I can stand there in front of somebody who's smoking a cigarette, and it still smells good to me. Yeah. And it's like, but something in my mind clicks, and I'm sure it does with you, that I can't have just one. Mm. And I'm not going to do it, but it's still temptation. It still is uncomfortable. Right. And it never goes away. So this is the struggle. Yep. We all have our little vices or sins, and we have to, yep. you know, we have to bear that. Mm-hmm. In this life, exactly. Like the Apostle Paul, take this out of my side. No, no, no. Right. You're gonna, you're gonna go on. And, and, and this I don't drink. I don't shoot at people. Yeah. I don't try to drive them off the road. Right. Right. I don't shout swear words out the window of the car anymore. <laughs> but. The more ephemeralized sins hurt every bit as much as the more dramatic ones used to Mm -hmm. because my calluses have worn away. And it's just as big an issue for me at morning prayer and evening prayer each day because I was short with Valerie. 
Yep, yep. Because I knew I should have cut the grass, and I didn't. The beauty of living a life of, that's characterized by the rhythm of confession doing it at morning and evening prayer. And I do think going to private confession is, is really important too in this is that sin is actually really boring because people will say that, well, you know, you have to hear all sorts of things in the confession. They are all boring and I've heard all of them before. So you can't surprise me at this point. And you even get this, right? So like, you know, uh, so like I said, I, I sometimes go to a Roman Catholic church for confession. And so you sit in this line and there are a bunch of people there and you know, you're just sitting there you're looking at the crucifix, you're praying, and you're, you're, all these sins start to kind of compound in their weight because you're meditating on them. And especially with the crucifix right there, God loves me that much. And what did I, I did that, you know, again? And, um, and then you go in and you start listing your sins. And often the priest is, and this is also just true of Roman Catholic priests because they're not always the most pastoral, uh, but they, they're just totally like unimpressed by it, you know? Okay. All right. Is that all? <laughs> so, but it's good because it's a reminder. Soren Kierkegaard talked about this. He said, who in the, in the confessional is condemning you? You are condemning you, not the priest, not God. Right? I don't condemn you. Where's, where are those that condemn you? Get up and sin no more. And so we need that rhythm. That's part of discipleship. Because that's about, that's about our progress. And so, you know, discipleship, yes, you need to know the content. You need to know why we do things and what is significant about the Trinity and all that. But if you're not living a life of prayer, then that, you're not going to make progress. This is what I have trouble with, like, Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had encounters with them over the years of my life, you know. And I never really understood, you know, like, why the confessional and why. Mm. Yeah. Because what they do, they, they cherry pick. Yes, yes. They, they say, okay, call no man thy father. But that's it. You know, it's, it's, it's totally taken out of context. Yep. Uh, and that's the problem. I, I, I mentioned, even my dad, he had a study with them back in 1957, and I was like about five years old at the time. And uh, I would overhear what they were talking about because I would better. But then came a time where my, uh, I got older. And uh, the, the young man that was giving my father the Bible study was a very nice man, very good man. And um, one day he brought the overseer to the house, and then uh, and, 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 and immediately the overseer came into my father's house, my father's house now. And right away out of his mouth he said, "Well, during Armageddon and all the last days, we will take over these houses." Oh my gosh. <laughs> we will take over these homes. And this is, he's talking to my dad, who had been born in 1914, who went through living as a young boy through World War II. Yep. 1920s, 30s. Living through World War II, Korea, all this stuff. And he looked at this, he looked at the young man who was giving him the study. He said, and I'm not going to say it because I'm in church. He said, You get this out of my house, <laughs> and don't you ever bring him back. <laughs> now, the point, the reason why I'm Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, in other words, what does it say? Honor thy father and mother, right? But yet he's telling me that I have to basically shun them to become right. a Jehovah's Witness. I have, if they don't believe, then I have to turn against them. So with the knowledge that I had about Scripture, I and God told me, look, this is not right yeah. to turn against your father and mother. So that was the end of it for me. Right. Discipleship. So I was. I sat in a in a in a lecture given by a Baptist minister recently, and he talked about discipleship. And it was interesting to me because a lot of what he said was really good. But it's also true that, especially when you are not conscious of the historical nature of the church, that is what the church has taught in the past and what it teaches now, 
that um, discipleship often looks like the person doing the discipling. You know, this was in some ways this this pastor's discipleship group at his church was per, about producing many me's. And, you know, to some degree that may be inevitable, you know, I mean, you lead a certain way and people follow and replicate, model, mimic, whatever. But at the same time, you know, I'm not in, I really am not interested in creating little Wesleys running around the parish, you know, doing everything the way I would do things. I don't want you to do that. If I teach you something, look at what the church teaches. Has the church always taught that? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm not coming up with new things, and I'm not trying to replicate my personality. No, I don't believe these things because of me. I believe them because you look at the church, and they've always taught that. And so that should be the real metric for us. And so, yes, it's very easy to cherry pick, and it's very easy to, for discipleship to go awry so that we're not actually following the true teacher, right? But, uh, but so that's why, you know, when we teach something, look it up, you know, do some research, does, is that what the church teaches? Um, and, uh, you know, if the answer is yes, then great. As Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so same, same thing here. That's, and that's what we pledge for with our bishops. You know, we're obedient as long as they follow Christ. You know, if, like with the Episcop- what happened in the Episcopal Church, you got to a point where bishops weren't. And so we had to do that. We have to take that discipleship elsewhere exactly. <laughs> or else we'll be malformed. Well, good. Well, so hopefully at the end of the day, we see how family, marriage, parish life, I mean, it's all connected and it's all really a beautiful way for us to become more like Christ. I mean, each one of these uh, contexts, marriage, family, parish, become places in which we are formed and become little Christ. And so they're the backdrop on which all this happens. They're the together, the symphony. Uh, that creates that beautiful Christian life. So thank you for coming today. I'm going to close with a quick prayer, and uh, then we'll be done. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we got to spend together this morning. We thank you for all of the conversations that we had. We pray that as we leave this place that we will be sharpened, that we will be uh, informed, that we will live lives in our marriages and in our families and in our parish that will, that will leave us and those that we encounter better off. We pray for all those here at our church who are married, that, 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 they're, that this experience of, of being wed to another person, being one flesh with another person, would point them deeper into the mystery of the relationship that you have with your church. And we pray for all of the families here at our church that that they would that those contexts would be places in which they learn all the virtues that you want us to learn and we pray that all of our families would be would be contexts in which the faith is taught and passed on to the to subsequent generations and finally we pray for this parish we pray that we would be a light to a very dark world that we would be uh, a people who apply medicine to to a very hurt and injured world We pray that this would always be a place that's centered first and foremost around the sacraments that you gave us, around the scriptures that you gave us, around the teachings of the church that you gave us. And we pray that we would would be an evangelical people, that we would reach out, that we would bring people in, that we would continue to replicate and go deeper and further up and further in to the mysteries of our faith. This we ask in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much.